I would draw your attention back to Ephesians 6 this morning in verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10. We'll read down through verse 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Sovereign Lord, we thank you this day, Lord, that we can come back together and meet as the body of Christ and worship you, uh, to look to your word this morning, Lord, and to, uh, to see what you would have us to see from this passage that was penned by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to the, penned by the Apostle Paul, Lord, for the church's benefit there in Ephesus, and then by extension to us here this morning, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would just teach us out of your word this morning. The Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, that he would give us discernment and wisdom, ears to hear, eyes to see. Lord, we pray for Dad as he speaks to these men there in Missouri this morning, that you would give him liberty, Lord, give him wisdom and discernment as he speaks to them. Lord, be with all those who meet this morning. Lord, be with those who are undergoing tribulation and trials. Lord, those that are in parts of the world that are currently in conflict, Lord, we pray this morning that you would just give them a great sense of your presence. Lord, that you would bestow your mercy and your grace upon them, Lord, and let them find rest in you. Lord, we, we pray this and we, we know that you hear our requests, Lord, in Christ. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and we love you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, for a few weeks now, we've looked at, what, at some of what is given to us through the inspired pen of the Apostle Paul in verses 10 through 13 of this chapter uh, here in Ephesians 6. Uh, we've looked at the fact that Paul is drawing his letter to this church here in Ephesus, and because we believe that this was probably a circular letter, circular letter, one that would be copied there in Ephesus and then sent to other churches on a circuit, it's been given to us as well by extension of that. But he gives us this final statement, starting in verse 10, uh, that we have dealt with. I would have us remember, and I believe that we all have this in our mind, that we're aware of this, that what Paul has been doing in this letter 
is laying before us these glorious truths, these grand truths, these doctrines of what God has planned for his people before the foundation of the world. What Christ has done in carrying out that plan, that in actuality was a plan of the triune God, the three persons of the Godhead together before the foundation of the world, but what Christ has been doing in carrying out that plan and purchasing for us by his worth and by his work, all that is being given to us and all that was planned before the foundation of the world. He has secured that for us and then we have been given this Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the the Spirit of Christ, uh, God's Holy Spirit to indwell us and to seal all that has been done for us until the day of redemption, until that day when, when Christ comes or we have been risen and risen from the grave ourselves, and these mortal bodies who have become dust are glorified and given the fullness of our inheritance in heaven. It's going to be an amazing day. But this is all contained in these first three chapters that we looked at in this letter to the Ephesians. Then we've proceeded to go through and we've come to this more practical part of this epistle. Paul has laid the foundations of truth. Now here, Paul says, are the implications of this. Here is what flows out of what has been done and has been done for you. Here's what flows out or here is what has become of you in light of that. Even then, he never left doctrine behind. While giving us these practical implications More doctrine, more truth is revealed to us. Mysteries, that he calls them, are revealed to us. The source of our strength is revealed to us. It's lifted up high before us, this source of strength that we have in Christ. The grand truth of the body of Christ and the unity that exists within that body is made known to us through what God has done on our behalf. We're shown this new life, this new creation that we have become in this great salvation that God has given to us and what our lives should now look like as a result of that. It can be convicting at times to look at these things. It can be convicting. It can be often a rebuke to us when we see what we have been given and what we are called to. We're told earlier in Ephesians that we're called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which we have been called. And this goes against everything that is natural to fallen man, this walk that we are to walk in Christ as new creatures in Christ. goes against everything that is natural to fallen man. And yet this is what it should be and what should be born out of a life that has been redeemed, a life that has been made new, a dead man made alive. We see this in the relationship of husband to wife, children to parents, slaves to masters, serving one another in a way that is contrary to the flesh, but a way that was pictured for us by Christ who came in the form of a servant. 
And here we come to this finally, which we've been dealing with for the last few weeks. We've looked at our strength in Christ our Lord, what has been provided for us in general terms of the armor of God to stand against our enemy. We've looked at who the enemy is, what the enemy is, what his followers are under him. And we finally looked at what we are, that we are called last week to stand against him. There's a whole lot more that we could look at from these verses if we had the time to do so. I would commend to you a work by a, by a fairly unknown Puritan by the name of William Gurnall. Uh, he was back in the 1200s. Um, fairly unknown. We have very, very little of his writing. We have two sermons and this book, which is actually a compilation of a, of a sermon study that he did with his church in the 1200s. But this series of messages made into a book is called The Christian in Complete Armor. It's 1,240 pages long. 1,240 pages long. The book weighs over three pounds. It is a big book, and it is the definitive work on this passage. Ten verses, 1,240 pages. Ten verses that take up in my Bible less than a quarter of a page. It raises a question. When a man would spend that much time, that much effort, in looking at ten verses, what is so important about these ten verses that a man would devote that much of his time to preaching through that portion of Scripture? That's a lot of effort. It's my belief that verse 12 gives us the answer for this. And we've looked at this. This is by way of a little review, but it's my belief that verse 12 answers this. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Why spend all this time? Because the conflict is real. It's real. And the flesh, as we have stated, is incapable of fighting against that which is not fleshly in nature. Because this is real, and, and because it is beyond our ability... It's, it's beyond anything that we have a way in that which is natural to us to defend ourselves against, much less fight against. Because of that, it is so important that a man would spend years of his life preaching through this. Ephesians 6.13, 
following that verse says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. This is the way. This is it. To take up the whole armor of God. So what is it that has been given to us in this armor? Well, I'd like to begin this morning by drawing attention to one thing that I would have you to put in your minds, and I would not have you to put this in the back of your mind as we start to go these items through these items that Paul lists. I would have you put this at the forefront of your mind as we look at each of these pieces of the armor. Uh, however long it takes us, I think we'll probably get through two of them this morning. Uh, but that, that as we go through these items that Paul lists in this armor that has been given to us, what I would have you to have in the forefront of your mind is that each and every piece of this armor is provided for us out of the fullness of Jesus Christ. That's where these pieces of the armor come from. Out of the fullness of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our King of kings, our Lord of lords, this is where this armor comes from. Every piece of this armor is either of Him, through Him, or by Him. Every piece of it. We are told to put on the whole armor of God. And, and Paul would say this in another place, and what I believe is shorthand for what he's saying here in Ephesians. In Romans 13, 14, he says it like this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's shorthand for everything that Paul is saying here in these 10 verses. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what we read over and over again as Paul starts his letter to the Ephesians? In Christ, in Him, in Christ Jesus, over and over and over again. Everything that comes to us, that saves us, that protects us, that preserves us, that leads us anywhere is in Christ Jesus from beginning to end. We talked about the ark, I think early on in our series in Ephesians, about what it means to be in Christ and how I think that probably the best picture of that is Noah's ark, how that Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives were placed in the ark itself. And everything that beat down on the world beat down upon the ark. But those who were inside the ark were protected from all that God's wrath poured out. That's what it means to be in Christ. Well, if our armor of God is to protect us from our enemy, and that armor is in, of, and through Christ, and it shorthand is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, then think of that the same way. Our protection is to be in Christ. Well, what is the source of the imagery that we find here in this passage? I think most of us have read this passage numerous times in our lives, from the time we were probably very little if we grew up in church until now, and we've probably heard sermons on this. 
And I think it's quite clear that Paul, when discussing this battle, is having a picture that he sets before us of a Roman soldier. Some would suggest, and I'm not in any way adverse to the idea, uh, averse to the idea that it's possible that he is drawing this imagery from a Roman soldier that he may even be chained to in his imprisonment that he is in under house arrest when he writes this epistle. He is in prison, chained to a Roman soldier. It is very possible that that is what the Lord is using, the Spirit of God is using, to inspire Paul to write this in this manner, that he has before him a Roman soldier arrayed in much of this that he mentions. I think this is a great possibility, and I think that that does have a lot of bearing to this, but I think it's just the start of this. Paul, at this point in Paul's life, is what we might call a veteran of war. A veteran of war. He bears the scars and the wounds of conflict. I think sometimes there is a a designation, and this may be me not being military, not understanding exactly the designation, but I think that we designate that there are veterans and there are veterans of foreign war. What's the difference? One has actually seen combat. They've been in a a foreign territory, in a, a, a battlefield, or a place where a war is taking place. Paul is a veteran of war. He's a veteran of war. Turn to 2 Corinthians really quick with me. Let's look at some of the experience that Paul has in this warfare. 2 Corinthians 11. I'd have you look at uh, verse 24, and we will read down through verse 33 of 2 Corinthians 11. Starting in verse 24, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent, I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety from all the churches. Who is weak? Remember this from last week. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast on the things that show my weakness." The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down through a basket, in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Do you see here all that Paul has endured in this spiritual warfare, in this battle? Now, some of these things were done by the hands of men, were they not? 
but men who were doing the bidding of who? Their master, Satan, doing the deeds of their father, the devil, to accomplish the desires of their master. So Paul, the veteran of spiritual warfare, riding in prison, chained to a Roman soldier, is most definitely drawing on the armor of soldiers that he has seen and even interacted with. But along with that, Paul, who has an incredible understanding and bringing up in the scriptures of the Old Testament, I think is also drawing references from those scriptures as the Spirit leads him to write these things to the church. Isaiah 11 has a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. And we read in Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then further on in Isaiah, again in Isaiah 49, we have the servant of the Lord described to us. Another prophecy of the Christ. Isaiah 49, 1 through 2. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb and from the body of my mother. He named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And again in Isaiah 59, 16 through 17, which we read a greater portion of this earlier when we had our scripture reading, where the prophet Isaiah states of Christ, he saw that there was no man and wondered what there wondered that there was no one to intercede, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, Paul is not directly here in Ephesians. He is not directly quoting those Old Testament prophecies of Christ from Isaiah. But I think it's clear that his attention is being drawn here by the Holy Spirit to these passages where our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is pictured as a man of war, clothed 
and armed with armor and weapons of war. But just like in our text here in Ephesians, these are not physical weapons. And the light of the New Testament shows us even more that fact. I believe that we looked briefly before at some point in our study recently that this is not the only place where Paul points or paints a picture of being armed with what God has given us for this battle. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, 1 Thessalonians 5.8, But since we belong to the day, Paul says here, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In 2 Corinthians 6, 3-7, through 7, We put no obstacle, Paul says, in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, Paul says. In afflictions, think about what we read earlier about what Paul went through this veteran of of war. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, and with the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left. What is the source of the imagery and why is it important? Once again, why is it so important that a man would spend 1,240 pages and the text be so small that my eyes, as I get older, can barely read it? I have to get up close and personal with this book when I read from this book. 1,240 small typeface pages. Why? Why is it so important? Because the battle is real. And Scripture points us to a Savior armored with weapons to overcome and calls us to be clothed in the armor provided by this same Savior to stand against His enemy. To stand against His enemy who, when we are joined to Christ, becomes our enemy. And we must stand against this enemy and be prepared, we looked at last week, for the evil days before us when the attacks of our enemy may come. Well, Paul here in verse 14 begins giving us this list of armor with the belt of truth. You look at Ephesians 6.14, the first part of this verse says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The picture here that I believe Paul would draw our attention to is the piece of clothing or the piece of armor that would bind together the loose garments that would flow when a person moved. If left unfastened, they would be a great hindrance in battle. A great hindrance. 
It'd be a hindrance to the soldier who would have to contend with his own clothing as he moved to block with his shield or swing with his sword or step back or to step forward. The dress back then is very different than it is now. It, would be not, it wouldn't be so hard for me to fight in what I have on today. But back then, what did they wear? They wore something more akin to a robe, a tunic that flowed as you walked and as you moved. A flowing garment that would have to be girded up or fastened in place to go to work or to battle. How many times do we read in Scripture something of girding up the loins? That's what this is dealing with here. Gathering together all that is loose so that you may go and do what is set before you to do, being uh, unhindered by your clothing. All that is worn by a soldier must be anchored and tied securely so that it is not a hindrance. Well, what is the truth that this belt is made up of? Well, it's the doctrines contained in God's revealed truth. These are foundational to all that the Christian is and should be, all that he is and does, and all that Christians united in the body of Christ or the church is to be and to do. Is this important? Is it important? Is this a necessity that the people of God have these truths tied and fastened about them to bind all, all that they are to them? Well, absolutely, this is necessary. Listen to what Ian Hamilton said. Ian Hamilton said that the escalating tragedy of the Christian church in the past 100 years has been associated with its abound, abandoning the truth and authority of God's revelation in the face of unbelief. The present spiritual and moral debility of the church is due permanently to one thing. It has let slipped, slip, often willfully, the belt of truth. If God's saving truth in Christ is not what binds the life and mission of the church, it becomes prey to every wind of doctrine and ends up a spiritual and societal irrelevance, a parody of its divine identity and calling. If we, if we and all else we fight with is not bound up and about us with truth, we will inevitably be drawn away and fight battles that our Lord has not set before us. We might be fighting battles that are not against our enemy. We might be finding ourselves arrayed in a line of battle on the wrong side of the skirmish. I would ask you, is this not what you observe in many professing Christian churches today? Is this not what you see? Christians and churches who have not fastened on the belt of truth, look at what many in the professing churches and professing Christians have tied about them. Think about that for a moment. 
They have not fastened the truth of God around them to prepare for battle, but they've fastened about them man's lies, man's desires, man's passions, man's schemes, and they would call this truth. How many churches and Christians today are out there rallying for things that God clearly says in His Word? The truth of God's Word are an abomination. Are hated by Him. Let's take one, abortion. There are professing Christians that are standing in pulpits all over America today saying that abortion is in accordance with God's Word. Is that being girded up? Is that being fastened together with truth? Is that putting on the belt of truth? Let me ask you, is truth found in man's ideas? Is that where truth is found? Where is truth found? Truth is found in a person. It's found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the what? The truth and the life. We have absolutely no defense, no defense whatsoever if we stray away from the truth, if we stray away from Christ and His Word. This is foundational to what Paul is telling us here. That which we should bind all that should that that which should bind all of this together, everything that he talks about here, that binds it all together is the belt of truth. It's the foundational truth of what God revealed to us through the inspired writing of the Apostle Paul and what we have already looked at throughout all of our series in Ephesians. Well, what about another facet of what might be called truth? What about sincerity, honesty, being genuine? Some people say it's one or the other. It is foundational truth, some say, that is this belt of truth. Others say, no, it's being sincere in who you are. It's being genuine. It's being honest in who you are. That's what it's saying here. I don't think it has to be one or the other. In fact, I think it is a truth that the one logically flows out of the other. Isn't that what Paul would lead us through what he's shown us in Ephesians? He puts before us the grand truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that truth transforms those who God shows it to and reveals it to and lovingly calls, separates them to himself, redeems them, regenerates them, makes them a new creature. All these truths become the foundation of that which transforms the life of that individual who now loves truth, who now wants to be sincere, who now wants to be genuine. It's transforming. William Gurnall, hundreds of years ago, said, Some by truth mean a truth of doctrine. 
Others will have it truth of heart or sincerity. They, I think, best that compromise uh, comprise both. One will not do without the other. One will not do without the other. He's right. Sincerity, being genuine, being honest, having integrity, will not flow out of a poisoned well. It won't happen. Will not be found in one who has no foundational truth that comes from outside himself. How is a person who has a foundation that is subject to change with his desires or his whims, how will he ever have any true sincerity? If he does, surely it won't be a lasting sincerity. When hard times come, when afflictions come, when attacks come, when accusations come and it gets hard, his will, his desire will change if it's not based on some foundation that is outside of himself. This is why we must be bound. And all we fight with must be bound around us, fastened to us by this belt of truth. Truth does not change. Real truth. God's truth does not change. Don't buy the lie that is being told all throughout the world today that there is no truth. That's what everybody, I am amazed. I've told you before about Todd Friel that goes to these colleges and speaks to these kids going to college, these, these institutions of higher learning. And he asks them simple truth statements and they won't answer them because there is no truth. It's absurdity. It's absurdity. Either God is or God isn't. Either Christ is our Savior or He isn't. He's either the way or He's not. He is either the truth or He is not. There is truth. It doesn't matter what your perspective is. It doesn't matter what your desire is. It doesn't matter how passionately Passionately, you want something to be or not be doesn't make it truth. God is who makes truth. And it is absolute because he is an unchanging, immutable God. There is truth. In reality, the truth is it's either Christ or die. Is that not what we've been looking at through all through Ephesians? Could we not sum up a lot of what Paul says by give me Christ or else I die? David in his great penitential psalm, Psalm 51, speaks of Speaks of this truth, I believe. You remember from last week we mentioned David's great sin. And the sin came to him, I said, while he was unarmored against the assault of the enemy that was coming upon him. 
Well, in his cry to God for forgiveness, we read David saying in Psalm 51, verse 6, Behold, you, God, he's talking about you being God, behold, you delight in truth in your inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David was talking about the fact that God is pleased. He delights in truth in the inward being. Truth, that is sincerity. That is being genuine, honesty, purity in the inward being. But how is it that that is brought about? Well, what does he say there in Psalm 51.6? Wisdom in the secret heart. The truths of what God is and who God is and what he has done on behalf of his people are truths that lead to this genuineness, this sincerity, this longing after that which God loves. Truth. David needed to have been armored, to have truth binding up all that he was when he was there walking on the rooftop of the king. There when he committed the sin of adultery, which led to the sin of lying and murder. And then this penitential psalm that we referenced here in Psalm 51. And earlier in Ephesians, we read in Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is why this belt of truth girding up all that we wear, all that we are is so important so that we are not led astray. If we are girded about by this belt of truth, we will not be led astray by all that's taking place in this world. When you have conflicts like we have today, when you have tragedies that we have today and you just are inundated, we were talking about this earlier, inundated, inundated by the news of all of this, it can just bring you into a state of despair. But we are to be girded to put on this belt of truth that tells us what? That God is sovereign. God is in control. God has a people who he will is, and already has redeemed. Why do we let the things going on in the world lead us astray, cause us hardship or turmoil when we have this belt of truth, all the scriptures telling us who God is, what God is, and that he is the sovereign one. He is the high king of heaven. And all authority has been given to Jesus Christ in heaven and here on earth. Why do we let it throw us into despair? Gird yourself. Fasten this belt of truth upon you. Well, try and get through the breastplate of righteousness. We go on to read in Ephesians 6.14, the last part. Having put on... 
the breastplate of righteousness. Believers are protected by a breastplate, an armor that covers, that's fastened about the body, that covers our heart and our vital organs. It's an essential piece of armor. And it's essential that this particular piece of armor be a breastplate of righteousness. We must then ask the question, well, what righteousness and from whom does this righteousness come? Well, in the first place, let's answer the question of what righteousness. It must be a perfect righteousness. This must be a, a breastplate of a perfect righteousness, not a partial to shelter the heart of the soldier. That won't do. It must be a perfect breastplate of righteousness. I hope that we will never for a single moment, for a fraction of a second, think or ponder that this might be a partial righteousness. A partial righteousness would also entail what? A partial unrighteousness. Unless we think that this partial righteousness would suffice, hear the words of the Lord speaking through James, the brother of our Lord. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law, this, this man might be righteous in every point. He says, whoever keeps the law but fails in one point, one point, righteous in everything, but unrighteous in one. What does James say? He's guilty of it all. He's guilty of it all. So I would ask you, would a defense be possible when armed with a breastplate full of holes? Would the arrows of our enemy, would the sword of our enemy or the spears of our enemy not find a place that they might pierce us? And would it, be by what we heard from James just one hole in reality by what James is saying we would have no breastplate at all if this righteousness is a partial righteousness so then let's ask the second question where must this perfect righteousness for our breastplate come from well, there's only one answer, right? This is from Christ. It is made of the imputed righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He alone has perfect righteousness. All our righteousness is what? If we added them all up, what would they be? Up like a polluted garment, filthy rags, as the King James calls it. Certainly not a breastplate of righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6, We have all become as one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds, plural. King James just said all of our righteousnesses. All of our righteous deeds, plural, are like a polluted garment. We all failed like, fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind. Take us away. No, this breastplate must be made of the righteousness of the God-man and His righteousness alone. Would we stand before our enemy 
armored in filthy rags or a blessed breastplate of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ? Would you dare to stand before the devil's accusations against you in your own righteousness? Look to your own heart just for a second. That's all it's going to take to discover, to investigate your own self-righteousness and see if you might stand in your own against our enemy. If we're going to stand, we must stand in another's righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. Romans 5.18 Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation, to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And that act is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 And because of Him... You are in, here it is again, in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Christ has been made our righteousness. Do you see why Paul would say in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places who has blessed us in Christ, in Christ Jesus, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have nothing if not for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the breastplate that defends us against the accusations of our enemy and the doubts that he would fester up within us as he attacks us. It is Christ's righteousness which is my abundant, exceedingly efficient defense. It's Christ's righteousness. We've, we've read this, this passage numerous times over the last several months. Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. What is it that he interceded with and presents to God on our behalf? What is it? It's his righteousness. It's his righteousness. It's his holy and unblemished righteousness, and it shines forth, in inestimable worth on behalf of us who have no worth of our own. He intercedes for us. It is this that defends us against the accusations of our enemy. It gives us a defense that we might say when accused, when the slanderer comes and accuses us. It gives us the defense that we might see, see foul serpent, 
The righteousness of Christ is my breastplate. Take a look, cruel devil. I have no defense in my own self, but here given for me is plenteous grace and righteousness of the one who died and rose again and crushed your head. Here is the breastplate of the imputed righteousness of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Throw what you will at me. I am a guilty sinner, but I'm a guilty sinner washed in the blood and redeemed by the blood of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I stand in His righteousness. The devil has no dart. The devil has no spear that can penetrate the righteousness of Jesus Christ given on your behalf. The Lord, my righteousness. This was called the watchword of the reformers. The Lord, our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu. McShane, who I spoke about last week, wrote in November of 1834, toward the end of his life, a poem that he entitled Jehovah Sidkenu. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Sidkenu was nothing to me. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure in John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Sidkenu seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the waters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah Sidkenu, t'was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fears shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Sidkenu, my Savior, must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished with boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah Sidkenu is all things to me. Jehovah Sidkenu, my treasure and boast. Jehovah Sidkenu, I never can be lost. In thee I shall conquer. By flood or by field, my cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield. Even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever my God sets me free, Jehovah Sidkenu, my death song shall be. He truly is our righteousness. And our breastplate in the armor of God 
that has been given to us to withstand our great enemy. This is not to say that we shouldn't seek to live godly lives. That we shouldn't seek to live in faithfulness to what God has told us to do. We should. But we do that out of greatness and thankfulness to free grace that awoke us and saved us, made us new creatures. Our chief end is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But everything that we do on this side of glory is still full of weakness and imperfection. And while dealing with these remainders of indwelling sin that we have, and this life that we lead, and whatever we have inherent in us, even after being saved, is insufficient to be our breastplate to defend us against our enemy. Our defense is the spotless Lamb of God who has clothed us in the garments of His righteousness. That's how we stand. I think we're going to have to end here this morning. Lord willing, next week we'll finish up on the armor and then shortly draw this journey through Ephesians to a close. But I'd like to say to you Christians this morning, I'd like to exhort, exhort you to be thinking about these things, these two things, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Think about what these are. Think about the source of them, the provision that is made for us in them and how we might daily take them up, tend to them, maintain them, cherish them, and go to battle with these things. And to those who don't have any such armor, may this be the day that you search for it. Cry out to God for it. Look away from yourself. See yourself not as the world sees you, not as you see yourself when you want to see the best of yourself. But see yourself as God sees you. There is truth, not man's opinion, not the world's way of doing things, not the world's perspective of this or perspective of that. There is truth. There is an absolute and sure truth upon which you might build a sure and solid foundation. And that truth makes known to us and is the only way the truth of God's Word that will make known to you the righteousness of Christ that can be placed to your account, that will enable you to withstand the attacks of the enemy and to stand before a holy and righteous God who you cannot stand before in your filthy racks. Can't do it. But may today be the day that the Spirit of Christ sets before you the Savior who is arrayed in pure garments, holy and righteous garments, and that the Spirit of God would show you Him and exchange those filthy rags for the garments of Christ's righteousness which He imputes to us. Let's pray.
Gracious Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your provision and what You've given to us that we might stand before You and stand against our enemy. Lord, I pray that You would make this real to us. Lord, that we would stand firmly in these truths, that they might be a sure and solid, strong foundation. Foundation that will uh, survive and, and, and be there through all things. Lord, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. Lord, be with us throughout this week. May we share the love of God to others. May we stand against those things that we know are, are not from You, those things which we know are not according to Your truth. Lord, may we stand and stand firm against them. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.